Hello everyone, this is Control Structure episode number 70 for September 23rd, 2014. And I'd like to say hi to everyone listening. Uh, like everyone, I'm not sure of who listens to this. I haven't checked our listener numbers for a while. Anyways, uh, you know, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, if you're not on the website, you can go to thenexus.tv slash CS70 to see the show notes. You see how I mix that up there? You uh, did mix it up. So, I am your host, Andrew Bailey, and this week is uh, my co-host, Stephen Orvis. Hi. So, yeah, it's uh, been a sort of eventful two weeks. So, um, there was something that happened last Thursday, but I'll talk about that a little later. But on Saturday, I took a quick, brief trip back to the 20th century. Uh, That is this old thing back here. Um... So yeah, I wanted I uh, acquired a a ball mouse for uh, my old computer, uh, the one for the you know the actual old one from the 20th century. I named it that because well that's pretty much what it is. Um, and I also bought some crappy speakers that are powered off of USB. So and so I, I wondered about the USB speakers. That that seems a little too modern. I mean yes, there's USB back then. But there weren't that many USB ports around to waste powering a set of speakers. With. Okay, so you know it has like a normal you know headphone jack plug, but mm-hmm. instead of be- plugging into a wall, you plug it into a USB port. Yes, I-, I get that. I'm just saying it's a whole USB port. I mean, like USB cords are like fifty bucks. Really, you're gonna put plug your AC power into there? Well, this is back back then. I well, think. I mean. You know, I wanted some crappy speakers, you know, just in general, and these seem to pretty much do the job, and I think that I, you know, they, it makes a rather nice portable music system with my uh, MP3 player, so I, double duty. I remember speakers from way back when that we had on a Windows 3.1 computer that it came with, they were plugged, like the, I mean, you may have seen them before, they're like kind of tall, you have two of them, and... And then they have the, the AC power plugs in and has the uh, like the clicker button when you click it and you hear them pop and then they come on and you can, you can really hear them when you turn them on. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember uh, having a 2.1 speaker set up like that. You know, I, I always like turning it on because it's like pop! Exactly. <laughs> of course, that's probably a hallmark of a uh, cheap sound system. Could be. I mean, yeah. it came with the computer. We didn't have a clue of what to do. <laughs> of, of course, you know the uh, the ideal speakers that I wanted were uh, speakers that you could just bolt onto the side of a monitor. You remember seeing uh, all I've, those? I've seen those before. That would fit very well with what you're doing there to have the bolt-on monitor speakers. Except, except my uh, monitor doesn't have the mounts for those. So, Gabriel uh, eh. so. <laughs> yeah, but I'm also talking about a CRT, so high voltage, watch out. I, I know, do the, the Velcro stick'em tape on speaker side, monitor side. <laughs> yeah, and then it'd be even crappier falling off. Yes, that is exactly <laughs> what I want. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, yeah, you were uh, mentioning there about storage on your Raspberry Pi. Oh, right, the Raspberry Pi. So turns out that uh, I think it's by dig. Some I think it's associated with uh, what used to be buy.com. Anyways, they're selling through eBay right now. Two 
15 gigabyte micro SD cards for $20. And I just bought the other day, like this week, I think it was, a 32 gigabyte micro SD card from Amazon and a Raspberry Pi Pi B Plus. So I'll be getting that soon and playing around with it and <sighs> seeing how it works. Yeah. The intention the intention is the furnace pie is going to stay a furnace pie, so I need a new pie to play with. Right. So, and uh, I guess before I go on, I mentioned that the uh, USB speakers made a nice portable uh, sound system. That's because I have a uh, power bank here, uh, USB. Oh, okay, I so, see. That would work nice for that then. So, and I have a, a 10 watt uh, solar cell. So, like, I can have a completely solar-powered uh, sound system. Very nice. So how long does it take the 10-watt cell to charge that battery up? Uh, I have no idea, but my vague guess is about two days. Okay. This is like a 8,000 mAh battery. Okay. So, so that, that's quite a bit of power in there then. Yeah, and I've, uh, you know, uh, Saturday I turned it on, and I've been turning it on for like a couple hours each day. And I've had this uh, thing on, you know, the entire time for the speakers, and I think it not not even quite down to half. So I guess either this battery is really huge, or those speakers don't really take that much power, or a combination thereof. I I saw a story online once of a guy. Uh, he must have been one of those green people people because he said, uh, "What are you doing with the?" Uh, I had a little adapter thing in one of the ports. Oh, this thing actually okay. has two ports. It looked like you were ports. trying to show it to me or something because you held it up to the screen and you're plugging it in. And <laughs> so, anyways, th- this guy uh, he got a router and a modem, and he was like, "Hmm, I bet I could run this off a solar panel." So he was showing the stuffs he took. I think he used an old car battery, and then he 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 bought a pretty nice solar panel though for it. He figured out the wattage. He showed his calculations. How he figured out what he needed. Because the you know you can probably only charge like eight or so hours in a day, and then you have to go the whole night you know to keep your internet up. Right. So it was pretty interesting. But the panel was like a two or three hundred dollars for the panel is what he figured he needed. So not exactly an easy thing to just go out did and it buy. Work? It did work. It, it it provided it power and it kept it online. I guess. I I do think that would be fun. I don't know if I'd actually do it to that extreme, but it would be interesting to have a solar panel and a Pi. Uh, powered off the solar panel. That was Maybe. my idea, but yes. apparently this battery is like so cheap that you cannot charge it and use something off of it at the same time. Oh, really? <laughs> or it might have just been a limitation of it wasn't charged up all the way at the time. I don't know, but huh. that's that's like my pretty much my only reservation against it. Um, from, what, from what I read, you need a pretty good sized panel to have enough for the Pi so it can charge the battery and actually like not get behind on the power at the same time um well i mean 10 watts that should that's definitely enough uh for a raspberry so i i think the the key is though you have some loss in your ac adapter and if you plug anything extra into then it's gonna be sucking more power the well, b plus is supposed to be more efficient though too so uh but if you have uh like one of those uh, I'm speaking about my uh, my kickstarted solar panel. It actually has a USB port right on it. So in, in like, that case, it seems like it would work yeah, for you there. Yeah, yeah, there's like no AC conversion. And as as a side note, just for kicks, I have looked up you know like solar panel kits you can buy to like put on your house, mm-hmm. so you can go completely off the grid. Um, I think you can buy like maybe twenty to thirty thousand dollar kits 
with like 20 solar panels. And I'm pretty sure that will, does not include the batteries. Uh, but yeah, you can like power your entire house and like not ever pay an electricity bill again. Yeah. I, I, I was reading about that online and I think it was popular mechanics that the magazine they said that it takes about 10 years to pretty much make your money back and then anything past that is profit so of course i don't know if you actually spent twenty thousand dollars worth of electric in 10 years i don't know how that well, one works well i mean we're what area were they talking about were they talking about california or something See, I don't think they said the area per se, but I did find another article over in England, and they're talking about the efficiency of solar panels and if they're actually cost-effective. And they were saying that northern England, that most people don't think that it's good to have solar panels up there. And they were saying even though the sunlight isn't as good, it's actually still pretty decent up there. And mm -hmm. there's another factor. They're saying that solar panels actually don't like to be hot. They like to be have the light, but they don't like to be hot. And so they said, to some extent, it's actually better to have the panels be cooler, but still getting some sunlight, than to be baked, scorched in the sun and be boiling. I don't know where the cutoff point is there, but they definitely said that the, the hot sun is not always what you want. So, yeah, like it definitely makes sense in places like California, where there's, you know, like a lot of demand on the electricity grid because of such a high density uh, population. Mm -hmm. And also remote places like Hawaii, where it costs a lot to, like, ship all the coal over there. So I believe that Hawaii has, like, the best, pen like, the highest penetration of, uh, like, home solar systems. Because um, it is the best weather then, huh? Yeah. And, you know, of course, you know, it's, you know, a tropical location. Uh, and, like, the, you know, cost of electricity is just really high. So you can make that investment back even faster. Uh, whereas here in Pennsylvania, it's, you know, kind of cloudy, uh, but there's, you know, like there's coal, like almost right underneath of us and fracking gas stuff like everywhere. So, yeah. so here it might take, you know, like it might even not even have much of a benefit like over the lifetime of the panel. But, uh, like I've heard like the efficiency of solar panels drops to maybe 80% after 20 years. And then it just like stays that way. Hmm. So you want to plan for that and buy extra to account for the fact that it's going to drop off on you. Well, that, but I'm also concerned, you know, you'd also have to be concerned about, you know, it's like cloudy here almost half the time. Yes. So, uh, anyways, that's that was a nice uh, uh, detour. But, uh, hey, uh, back to my uh, 20th century here. Um, I uh, flipped on The Verge, you know, just like scrolling through news articles. And uh, they just posted the video guide to Windows 95. I literally at guide. some point said, stop doing that. It makes you look like a dick. So uh, apparently it has uh, like Jennifer Aniston and like the other guy from uh, Friends, like the TV show. I don't know the TV show. Uh, see, Matthew Perry. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's just like this, the cheesiest possible way to like you know introduce something and it seems to be more of a product of the 80s and the 90s but i was just skipping through the video and it it, it does look like a it's it's a conversational video yes <laughs> it's not about when windows it's a conversation it's almost like a tv show yeah and i suppose to the uh computer illiterate that actually might uh be a better way of going about it yes and uh, now for a former... Anyways, I'll have to watch that one later. 
Yeah, I just got done watching it before the show. So, <laughs> and uh, now for a former Kickstarter, uh, the uh, potato salad. So, potato stock 2014 uh, will be held this coming Saturday uh, at the Columbus Commons from noon to 9 p.m. Uh, so. Uh, apparently he's, you know, got into, uh, like charity. This is like a charity event, uh, it's turned into. So, like, all the, uh, like, there is something you're going to do, like, throw a concert, uh, sort of like a street fair in, uh, the park in front of the Ohio State House. Um, so, like, there's going to be, like, uh, you know, food aside from potato salad, and there's going to be some music and stuff there. Uh, it's going to be a really fantastic party. So, you know, instead of Woodstock, well, it's potato stock. Um, so, so I forget, did you donate to that one or, yes. or are you going to the, yes. get your potato salad? Yes, I chipped in 10 bucks and I will be there. <laughs> uh, the actual potato salad will be made at like an Italian restaurant. Uh, like, uh, I think it was just off of the OSU campus there. And, uh, that'll be starting at like eight or so. Um, and I believe he's going to, like, make some potato salad tomorrow night, which is Wednesday night. And that's where he's going to list off all the names of the backers who, like, pledged 10 bucks or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely going to be there. And I definitely will uh, be, uh, how should I say, uh, engaging in reckless consumption of carbohydrates. I don't know what's going to happen on Saturday. The entire Internet could be here. Uh, I think this could hold it. It was July 4th when I first interviewed Zach Danger Brown. All he wanted was $10 to make potato salad, and then he had a few hundred dollars on his potato salad Kickstarter. We finished at $55,000. So now he has to make good on his promises and make the t-shirts, hats, recipe books, and of course, make the samplings of potato salad for all his backers. Piata will be helping him with the kitchen side of things, making enough for 4,800 people. And the extra money is used to put on potato stock at the Columbus Commons this Saturday. It's a benefit concert to raise money to support um, charities working to end hunger and homelessness in Central Ohio. Other supporters will be there with giveaways as well. These little spuddy buddy guys will be handed out. And Zach Danger Brown still has a sense of humor as to how many people he thinks will be coming to the Columbus Commons this weekend for the big potato stock event. You know, we invited the entire internet. That's billions of people, so million or two. And if you were not a backer, you can still get some potato salad on Saturday. All you need is a few dollars to donate. So doors open at noon, and that's when food trucks will be here. That's when beer will be here. At 1 o'clock, the Shazbots start playing, and they kick off a full day of music. Uh, and that goes till about 9 o'clock. And now for this week's LOL Apple. <laughs> uh, so a Australian, uh, how should I say, TV station, TV news show, um, interviewed a person uh, that was standing in line to buy one of those new iPhone 6s. And, uh, like, they show him there at the Apple store, just got it, just got the phone, and he, you know, opens the box, and, of course, you know, everyone's watching, and it pops out and falls onto the sidewalk, on <laughs> camera, in front of everyone. And everyone's like, oh! The first broken iPod. <laughs> so... So, yeah, it, I guess, you know, trying to look at this from, like, an Apple perfectionist perspective is that, you know, the design of the box was at fault here because it was, uh -huh. like, so sealed up that, you know, it was hard to get the uh, top of the box off. So, like, when you did, whoop, pop, 
iPhone false. There we go. Apple's fault. Go fix your box. Yes. Ooh, ooh, I had a Raspberry idea. So, so you have the solar panel-powered Raspberry, and then you have batteries to back it up. So you could mount the solar panel on your car and put the Raspberry inside your car with a remote to uh, unlock the doors and do, do the remote start. And then you could have the white Raspberry be a Wi-Fi hotspot that you could connect up to with a smartphone, and you could tell your car to start up or to stop or to unlock if you lock your keys in. Okay. And yeah. so that that means, too, you could even lock your phone in the car. <laughs> And you can just borrow someone's phone, and as long as you know the password for it to get into the network, you're in good shape. Yeah, that that's a pretty interesting idea. This is like homemade OnStar, basically. Yes. So, uh, you know, Raspberries, you know, they generally run some type of Linux, like uh, Raspbian or something. And, you know, of course, those have, like, all the small little, you know, Unix utilities on there. They're pretty battle-hardened, and they fit well into their own ecosystem. You should be able to CP uh, 400 million files without issue, right? Uh, Stand by for memory swapping. (laughs) Uh, So this guy here has an old Dell server uh, with, uh, I think he said, eventually 10 gigs of RAM and uh, a total of 40 terabytes of usable disk capacity. He wants to transfer all of these to another machine, you know, because they're upgrading or whatever. So he's like, okay, yeah, just, you know, use CP and, like, copy it over the network and everything will be great. Uh, well, he said that it took, like, a couple weeks to do that. And at some point, there was, like, literally no transfer happening between the two machines. And he discovered that uh, CP has sort of a, a flaw in it, in that it keeps a hash, a running hash table of all the files it has copied. So when you get to like 400 million files, it fills up your 10 gigs of RAM and it has to swap to disk, you know. And whenever it needs to resize that hash table, well, you're going to be sitting around for a couple of hours. And that was part of the problem they mentioned in the comments uh, after his post was that perhaps the initial start values of the hash could be bigger or different or something just to help eliminate that big pause where it just sat there for a long time, then it started copying again. Then did you see what it talked about at the end of the copy? It does like a cleanup on that hash table that it doesn't really need to do the cleanup. Yeah. And so he said that he let it go for like a day and it still wasn't cleaning up, so he finally killed it. Uh, anyways, I saw a guy released a patch in that thread there to drop that function call out so that it wouldn't do that at the end. Wow. So, um, I believe like the end of this uh, message, he says that if you want to copy a lot of stuff, a block level file system, uh, block level copy would be better than a file system level copy. CDD uh, is always bad. So, I mean, you know, of course, you know, if you want to you know, transfer your 20,000 file music collection, you know, CP will do okay for that. So, yeah, little, uh, you know, caution, you know, hey, surprise. That was a very interesting read. You could tell he was a guy that actually knew what he was talking yeah, about when he went through. and Yeah, he actually looked up source code, so uh-huh. good, <laughs> yeah. good, good for him. Yes. So, turns out that WordPress has issues with caching. I uh, made a little sarcastic post uh, last Saturday about, you know, oh, co-hosts are abandoning the uh, the network and are, go- you know, doing activities of an outdoor nature, uh, namely, you know, hunting and or bow hunting. 
so uh, you know, I I wanted Ryan to make a post about that uh, uh, because he's like, well, this news was not in my feed, so I'm not going to make a blog post about it. Uh, whereas some people, even though they are idea bankrupt, you know, I can still make original content. Um, so I did that, <laughs> and Ryan uh, actually, you know, made a post about it. And uh, I noticed that uh, his homepage did not display that little note. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I asked him, hey, you know, you might want to check your caching because, you know, even though this post is on your website, it doesn't actually show up on your homepage. So, uh, you know, I tried in every browser I have on my desktop. It's not working. Um, whereas he's like, well, it works okay for me. <laughs> uh, whereas, uh, for his machine, it was, you know, essentially his cell phone, um, or it was like Nexus five, six, seven, whatever, uh, not Nexus seven. He hates that. Um, so he found out that, uh, the particular setup of WordPress he has, uh, caches web, you know, pages for mobile differently. And, uh, apparently, uh, he realized that, uh, you know, it was set to throw out pages, I think, every day, uh, instead of every hour. So, yeah, good that, uh, he got that fixed. And I, re I recall that he also adjusted the, uh, caching on the Nexus.tv, uh, a long time ago, uh, because it would say, you know, podcast posted, like, six minutes ago. And when, in fact, it was like a week ago that it got posted. <laughs> yeah, six minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, it'd be good forever, right? Oh, yes. So, um, maybe you don't want to run Windows 98 on your uh, old 20th century computer. Uh, what if you used uh, Linux back then and want to do that? Uh, well, RLSD is for you. Uh, that's the Retro Linux Software Distribution. Uh, this actually has, uh, you know, old, uh, or at least, you know, updates to, uh, old packages, uh, so you can, you know, have an experience just like it was in the good old days, or just old days. Uh, and so the, and so the question to ask is why is this better than DSL? Uh, well, it's, it has a different, uh, target audience, um, whereas, you know, DSL, uh, that's the damn small Linux and not the, uh, uh, DSL line that you use for your internet, <laughs> or or any other myriad of things that DSL stands for. Uh, apparently, it has a really old kernel, like two point four, uh, which is you know absolutely small and provides a lot better compatibility with truly ancient hardware. And uh, whereas by comparison, RLSD has a more recent one. Uh, and RLSD actually comes in 64-bit, uh, as well as 32. So, and, you know, it's, you know, open for contributions, of course, um, and, you know, a few it's other things. said, too, that the, the libraries, that the while the programs were the newer versions, that had the updated versions of the libraries, which I find kind of interesting. Which I, I, I suppose the assumption is they fixed bugs in the libraries and made them better. Even though it seems like their core assumption is that older software runs faster. So I wasn't sure how that fit with the philosophy. Uh, they might not have added new features, but just, you know, fixed, you know, what was there existing. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. Uh, so, uh, let's see, I'm not, you know, you're not really into the web development uh, stuff. But, I'm trying uh, to get into it. 
but uh, what if you come across, you know, a need for like some sort of image carousel? Uh, you know, it's what you find generally on like corporate websites where like it, you know, pages through like maybe four images or so, like every couple of seconds. Um, so there's ideal image slider, which has absolutely no dependencies, uh, on, on JavaScript. And it's, uh, like, how should I say it's compatible with, uh, retina type displays, high DPI displays. And, like, it doesn't even have any JavaScript uh, dependencies, not even jQuery. And it, it looks very sensible of how you would actually go about doing this. You know, you simply have a div and just images or links or whatever. Yeah, it looked like using it was pretty easy. You just make, like, a, a like you said, with a div, an ID of slider, and then just give it images and it sticks them in there. And then you uh, throw a bit of JavaScript in there, you know, to initiate the thing or to give it some parameters and to start it. So, yeah, it's a very sensible way of going, you know, after things. And if I needed to tackle this problem, this is, like, pretty close to how I would do it. Yeah, simple is always good. So, uh, talking about simple, how about Blizzard? Uh, they are creators of games acronymed HOTS and other games that are simple to pick up but difficult to master. Uh, they have apparently canceled their Project Titan. This was supposed to be their next uh, massively multiplayer uh, online game, uh, since you might actually know their other famous game called World of Warcraft. Um, not much was known about this Project Titan aside from it being unrelated to any other series that they've made. Uh, so for the past 20 years, Blizzard has essentially been a three-trick pony, which is a lot better than most other thing other companies, which are one-trick ponies. Uh, but, uh, you know, it just, you know, as uh, an experiment, it would be interesting to figure out how would Blizzard go about, you know, building another world uh, or, you know, just expanding what they do instead of being stuck into Warcraft, Starcraft, and Diablo. Um so, but apparently they've uh, went ahead and canceled it. Uh, they have, like, I guess you would say that they have the balls to do that. Uh, that's, you know, you know, they're just, you know, really serious about designing games that are fun and interesting and, like, moves genres forward. And uh, apparently they didn't feel that Project Titan was doing that. See, the interesting thing, though, I, I noticed is a reference that they've done this before with other games they've ran them they canceled them yes they ran this game for seven years that's a lot of money yes they should have recognized it sooner or just gotten something out of it like even if you bring it to market and it flumps you got something they have nothing to show 2007 that was when i started college (laughs) uh the second time that is um so, yeah, but uh, then again, you know, at its peak, uh, World of Warcraft had 12 million players, uh, which, you know, netted it somewhere around a blockbuster movie every two weeks. Uh, right now, I believe it's fallen down to 6 million subscribers, so that's still a very large sum of money coming in every month. Uh, and, you know, of course, you know, they keep on releasing new installments to World of Warcraft, and they do, uh, experiments from time to time in the sci-fi and, uh, like, demon fantasy genre of, uh, Starcraft and Diablo, respectively. Um, but, uh, you know, Blizzard games have always had, you know, like, some sort of a mythical feel to them. 
Like, it's just, like, a completely different uh, way of designing them. And, uh, you know, even though, uh, you know, even now, you know, I was just playing some StarCraft on 20th Century over the weekend. And, you know, it's it's always a refreshing thing to go back. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember the first time I played through this mission or whatever. And, uh, you know, apparently, you know, uh, you know, again, like what you said, you know, it was over seven years. It was a pretty big thing. Uh, and they canceled it. And now they're moving on to smaller projects uh, like uh, Hearthstone and Heroes of the Storm. Uh, which is like a MOBA type thing, and the other one is a card game. So, like, you know, these are definitely smaller scale things than, you know, trying to build the next World of Warcraft or whatever. Uh, so, so by saying card game, do you actually mean a card game, or is it it's another... A, it's a simulated card game. Okay, okay. I, I thought maybe it meant something other than a simulated card game. I, was, <laughs> I hadn't heard of that one before, so I was going to have you explain that to me. But if it's actually a card game, okay, great. I know yeah, that is. it's it's <laughs> you know it's just you know you have you know a deck of cards, you know a virtual deck of cards, and you play mm-hmm. them. You know, okay. It, it, it would seem to me that that'd be a difficult thing to come up with a new type of game to play that doesn't mimic an existing game that has gained popular accept, accept, ah, acceptance. There you go. Yeah, and I've read tons of interviews of people at Blizzard. And former people at Blizzard who actually, you know, developed World of Warcraft initially. And, you know, they would back then, you know, multi- massively multiplayer games, you know, they didn't really get up to like much of anything, like maybe 50,000 players at a time. And they honestly did not expect, you know, more than 100,000 players to ever play mm-hmm. World of Warcraft. But it just kept on exploding and, you know, just snowballed into something huge. And uh, it's, you know, amazing that, you know, other people in the gaming industry, they see, uh, you know, World of Warcraft and they're like, hey, we should probably make something like that so we can have like a million, you know, players and like thousands, you know, thousands of millions of dollars in revenue. Um, But, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And it's already been done. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, it's it's happened again with uh, Call of Duty style games that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, gray, brown, gritty first person shooters that are like militaristic and stuff. Uh, And I think uh, like even now the market is kind of saturated with that. And even Call of Duty is starting to like calm down in sales. It's not the machine that it was. So, so yeah, I guess we can uh, look forward to more stuff on this on the gaming show, uh, 8-Bit. So let's uh, go ahead and move on to Simply Secure. Uh, this is an initiative to increase the usability of security features so that they are used more often by, you know, the vast majority of people. Uh, so, like, a, you know, the theory is if something is easy, is easy to use, it will be used a lot and often. Uh, which is, you know, the best, you know, you know, concept ever when applied to security. You know, so long as you don't dumb it down so lo- so much that it's no longer secure. I was trying to get a sense of exactly what they were. It, they they seem to be talking about like helping with open source projects. Are they an open source thing? Or are they an actual company that hopes to make money in some way? Um, from what I can tell, this is sort of like a ground, pro- a, a non-profit or like some sort of like a uh, like a multi-company initiative. Okay. Uh, so, you know, not only do they, you know, contribute, you know, it looks like they would contribute to stuff like OpenSSL, 
but they would also like contribute to like designing like interfaces for like mail clients or something to achieve that goal of making it easy to use. Yes. So, um, when we go to Backblaze, hey, they're pretty secure. They encrypt everything. Um, they also uh, released another uh, report on drive reliability. Um, I believe they uh, did that back in January or so. Uh, but uh, now they've released another one for September. It seems that more Seagate drives are failing, but apparently the 4 terabyte ones seem to be doing okay. So you had some notes on this? Ah, yes. That was about the, the drive farming. I found a link in the article. It uh, talked about way back when that flooding happened over in Thailand, well, the factories yeah. went weren't producing hard drives. I, I remember well, reading this one. Okay, you read that one. It was I, I must have read it in detail because it was, it was really fun to read. Like they said, they go out to Costco and and Best Buy, and they started limiting them on the number of drives they could buy. And they talked about renting a U-Haul, then driving across the United States, stopping every Costco and Best Buy to buy hard drives. Yeah, so it was it was funny to read. But getting back to the, the actual artic- article, there it seems like the Hitachi drives are, are the ones they have though, because they're uh what lower two three percentage failure rates, yeah. whereas everything else is quite a bit above. And Hitachi is consistent too. Like with the Seagate, you have one drive's really good, and then then uh, with Western Digital, kind of the same way. The three terabyte one failed a lot, but then the one terabyte one was better. And, and with we're talking where we're talking about a lot. The failure rate has gone up since last time. So yeah, col- so the the, yeah, the col- dark colored ones are going up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, colored bars are as of September. Gray bars are from the previous analysis in January. So, so yeah, this is not uh, uh, like drive uh, lifetime failures, or excuse me, like it doesn't doesn't uh, like categorize lifespan of these drives. These are total cumulative failures in the system. What's happened? I I want to say from the first article, I'm just going on memory here, that the Hitachi ones may have been original ones that they stuck into their system way back when, that those were the first drives they started with. I'm not positive about that, though. Uh, definitely the one terabyte and two terabyte ones. You know, I believe the more recent ones, they're just like going with a high capacity three and four terabytes now. So, um... I believe in their previous article, they said that they would like to buy Hitachi drives, you know, all the time, but apparently they're the more expensive ones. And like, I've, I've sort of noticed that too. Uh, I also noticed that Hitachi drives tend to be loud, hot, and, uh, like kind of noisy too. On the other hand though, (laughs) so data is worth a lot. Um, Whereas, like, I just got a bunch of four terabyte Seagate drives, and those are actually the Seagate ones that actually did better. So it looks like they actually bought, looks like they may have uh, bought more uh, four terabyte Seagate drives, so that pushed the failure rate down a little bit. Yeah, that's that's a pretty significant difference from the w- w- rest of the Seagate drives that the four terabyte ones have. So that's pretty impressive that Seagate improved quality like that. Yep. So, um,. Speaking about, uh, you know, data storage and, you know, writing things and drive failures, uh, how about that SSD write endurance test? Uh, apparently the tech report was uh, doing this, and I think the last uh, article was a few months ago, uh, where they had just crossed the uh, one petabyte mark, uh, which would be a thousand terabytes. 
Uh, so they've uh, gone up to 1.5 petabytes, and one of the three drives remaining died. Uh, and, you know, they also, you know, this article goes into the uh, uh, reports about how how many uh, sectors were reallocated on the uh, on the drive. And it looks like the uh, the Samsung one, you know, slowly accumulated errors, uh, whereas the Neutron drive, which is the one that failed, just had a massive spike at the end. Definitely impressive distance for those SSDs to have gone when you start talking about pentabytes. I'm not sure what the average user uses, but it, I'm thinking they probably don't use that much reading and writing. I mean, if we're talking about, I believe these are 240, 256 gig drives. Yeah. Uh, so, like, a petabyte would mean that you've rewritten everything, like, 4,000 times. Yes, yeah, so it's, and e even if you're, even if it was a bigger drive, most of your data is going to be static most of the time anyways. Yeah. So, so one thing I was trying to get a sense of in the article, it sounds like these SSD drives have dedicated sectors for replacing broken sectors. Yes. That they swap in. So then, then these sectors wouldn't be used for anything else except for replacing broken sectors. Yes. Okay. And I, and I believe uh, like actual hard drives have had those uh, for a long time also. I, I've known that they block sectors off. I, I never knew that they would actually be, had dedicated sectors just for replacing. To me, it seems like you could just use them, and, and as long as your drive wasn't all the way full, you can just repoint it to the other guy over there and and have it work, and it wouldn't matter who you used to replace it. So uh, they also, uh, not only did they, you know, have charts about the reallocated sectors, they also, you know, actually post benchmarks uh, from, like, each, like, 100 uh, terabytes. Uh, and strangely enough, it looks like that uh, Neutron drive that failed uh, actually got faster, uh, you know, as it went through the test. But then... As it started to fail, it crashed off a cliff. Do why it got faster as it went through the test? That's that's very curious, and I'm wanting to know what happened there. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it seems that uh, the firmware has gotten to a point where like speeds don't actually change a whole lot. You know, as the drive is used more, which it's, is it's able. It's you know definitely a good thing there. Mm-hmm. So, and that, and that's a pretty high level of confidence, too, in SSDs that we can actually use them as a reliable hard drive that's written to you every day. So, um, even though, you know, I was sort of uh, skeptical myself and, uh, you know, only put my operating system and apps on my SSD and kept all my data on my existing hard drive. So, uh, you know, speaking about cloud uh, storage uh, with a Backblaze there, how about Amazon? They are the uh, king of uh, cloud storage and cloud computing, uh, along with selling a whole bunch of stuff to you, uh, like physical goods and not virtual card game goods. Uh, so Amazon, you know, over the lifetime, you know, since, you know, its founding, it hasn't really posted a very significant profit. And that would seem like it's a problem to, like, many of these, you know, uh, shareholder types and analyst types, but it's not a problem. It has no profits because it reinvests all of the uh, revenue that it generates back into the company. 
And as a result, uh, like revenues have like taken off, uh, you know, ever since its founding because it just reinvests everything. So in some place in the article, it mentioned that one of the things it's doing is like, for instance, when it sells to another for another company, that since it's is not really showing the numbers of what Amazon got in profits for that sale, since there's another company's sale, I didn't, I didn't quite see how all that fit in and. Or is it just a sneaky way of Amazon to make money without actually showing that they made money? I think it might be a little bit of both. Um, and let's see, I don't think it actually mentions this anywhere. But I, I've read like tons of other articles that uh, said, you know, back in 2002 and three that, you know, analysts and investors were saying, you know, stay away from Amazon. It's doomed. Hmm. Uh, because like it hasn't made a profit or anything, and this is why. So the not making a profit thing that would just be that the shares would pay out the dividend of the excess money that they made during the year. But in Amazon's case, they're just reinvesting. They're buying more whatever, making new products out of the money that they would otherwise be giving back to shareholders. Is that the way it's working? Yeah. So and it's sort of it definitely goes contrary to the modern idea of increasing shareholder value. So Amazon is definitely the model to emulate here. It's interesting. So so it means that the company is doing very well, so that it, it makes you feel like the shares should be stable to you since the company seems to be a stable company, but then it doesn't actually produce wealth out of the shares, though. And if they don't have any intention of ever producing wealth, technically the shares aren't worth anything, but they'd be worth something because it's stable, maybe. So uh, then at the bottom here, it says, you know, actually uh, goes over Amazon's market share and, you know, goes on Amazon North America e-commerce as percentage of U.S. retail. And uh, looks like as of two years ago, uh, it was like 1.2%. And then it shows another chart of uh, commerce uh, growing very consistently, like e-commerce percentage of uh, retail revenue. And uh, Amazon, um, the third chart uh, showing Amazon, you know, increasing the market share of that growing pie. So, you know, they're definitely, you know, successful there. Yeah. They do well at the, the shipping thing. Their, their deal with the, I know they upped it from the 25 to 35, but even still at that, that, does make it a good deal because that's lots of times what kills you with the online buying stuff is the shipping mm-hmm. but in my case of like the sd card i just bought well the sd card wasn't 35 but you add the pie i knew i wanted one just not this soon but it's like you add the pie then the shipping's free yeah so i bought the pie exactly which is a good business model i guess so uh speaking about uh companies taking over things uh google has been quietly taking over the computing landscape uh, dominating it and driving down our Apple market share. Weren't we here 20 years ago? Didn't we like start, you know, having this back in the 90s? Oh, wait, yeah, it was Microsoft. <laughs> well, if you don't want to repeat, stop using Google services and products like Chrome. Uh, so, uh, you know, especially as uh, Google uh, starts to implement, you know, certain features that, you know, only work with its products, you know, it starts to have a vendor lock-in. He, he gave an example, was it the, the Google Docs or something only works with Chrome, it said? Uh, the offline features only work with yeah. Chrome. Uh, I'm, 
I remember they used to have the Google Gears thing that you could install in Firefox that used to work. So, yeah. and then they have that native client stuff. That sounds an awful lot like ActiveX. Hmm. So, uh, and then like a few other things that they've done, uh, you know, with the, uh, you know, Android is supposed to be this open source platform. Uh, well, they're moving all of the actual valuable services into like their own Google Sur- Play services platform and sort of leaving the, uh, the uh, open source part to sort of wither away. You do get the feeling that the Android that uh, it's very much a Google phone because everything just slides in so nicely, even like the apps, like you have to have a Google account and then by having the Google account, you can back up your apps, you can install your apps on a different one, you can lock your phone, you can reset your password through Google. There's there's so much you can do through Google with your phone. If Google just went offline, your phone is basically a brick. So, and of course, Microsoft and Apple are trying to stop Google, but even if they succeed, the goal is only to replace one victor with another. So, so, so is this guy associated with Firefox? Because it seemed like his whole point of the article was to use Firefox. He didn't really care yeah. about the other stuff. That was his kind of his punchline there. Use Firefox. So, or pretty much anything else if you're concerned about this. So I know I've just offended about 90% of my listener base with that. <laughs> I did switch to Firefox, as you remember. Yeah. And the Firefox awesome bar. Still not awesome? It's not bad with that plugin that I use now. At least I can type in G or... Actually, it's nice because you can type in like A and then search Amazon or E in your eBay. I think I just set up for that duck search engine at one duck, point duck, in time. But I, yeah, I never got in the habit of typing in D, though. I need to get in the habit of using D instead of G. That's all I have to do, and I can start using that instead. So, uh, MIPS, uh, the CPU uh, architecture people, uh, recently introduced the i6400, a 64-bit system on a chip. The instruction set uh, dropped a few specialized instructions and ones that GPUs would be better at, and uh, apparently the current core design includes two-way SMT, or simultaneous multi-threading. Most people would be familiar with that as a form of hyper-threading. So it's sort of like having a hyper-threaded, like, phone or something. Mm -hmm. Um... Unfortunately, this uh, article doesn't go into uh, power consumption that much, which is something that, uh, like, the ARM uh, CPUs are really good at. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, good to have more uh, competition in, uh, you know, cell phone hardware. Yes. I, I played with, uh, back in college, we did a class, and it was a simulator that, that ran the MIPS instruction set, and you could write programs in assembler for it. That was the only assembler I ever did. It was fun, though. How about you? Did you do a simpler at any point in no. time? No. Uh, um, I didn't see, I do much. See, I've toyed around with C and C++ a little bit. Uh, more with C++ to the point of actually, you know, drawing a triangle with OpenGL, uh, but nothing really more than that. So uh, the slimy devil Larry Ellison will no longer be CEO of Oracle. A herd of cats will take over. Uh, that is Mark Herd in Safra Cats. Uh, Mark Hurd, you might remember of being... Uh, <laughs> okay, nice pun. Uh, Mark Hurd, you might remember uh, being the CEO of HP before they uh, or maybe in the middle of them going through a bunch of CEOs for a while. 
apparently Larry Ellison will still be in charge of engineering, so I'm not sure if things will actually get better. It's interesting. So he must be a very technical guy that he wanted to step down and, and go to engineering. Uh, so, yeah, because, like, I'm not exactly sure about how, like, Oracle actually came to be, you know, the behemoth that it is, especially back in the early days. But I would not be surprised if he actually wrote, like, the first version of the Oracle database. It says he's, he's the founder of the business, so I bet he probably did have, in the early beginnings of it, a hand in it. <laughs> like Bill Gates and his, uh, oh, what is that, the... Kill the Mule game, whatever that DOS game donkey. that has his donkey. Yeah, yeah, the donkey game that has his comment at the top of the file that Bill Gates and someone else wrote this. <laughs> I think that's great. Yep, to have that comment in there that he did that. I still need to find that. I never did play that. I just found it on Wikipedia. I, I didn't actually play it. I should play it and see if DOSBox lets it run. I bet it does. Ah, well, let's uh, get to something a little bit more serious. Uh, we haven't beaten up on the NSA for a long time, and, I'll, and I think maybe the last time it was was probably before you uh, got on as co-host or host or whatever. <laughs> uh, so, according to top-secret documents from the NSA and GCHQ, intelligence agencies are seeking to map the entire Internet, including end-user devices. In pursuing that go, they have broken into gold, broken into networks belonging to D Douche Telecom. Oh, so that's how you spell that word. Um, so they've you know sort of like broken in and like sort of like mapped out networks, and you know as you know like that's that's kind of like you know proprietary confidential company information. So by networks, meaning the topology of the network, or I, I was trying to get what what they're saying uh see it's been a while since i read this article like fully uh but yeah a lot of people are like a little bit annoyed and you know this sort of like you know gleans into you know if if they were able to compromise the security to like map all these out you know like how much could like real uh terrorists like <laughs> yeah so yeah that's pretty disturbing and you know, you know, you know, new things are still coming to light with that. So this is this is all from what Snowden leaked. Then is yeah. This. Uh, so another uh, key company to that was uh, Yahoo. Uh, you know about you know uh, letting people letting the NSA read uh, everyone's email. Um, so uh, Yahoo. This was uh, uh, maybe three weeks ago. Uh, Yahoo announced the uh, disclosure of like 1,500 pages worth of legal documents in its challenge to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Uh, so this was like way back in 2007 uh, that you know the government came to them and said, "Hey, we'd like to have a copy of everyone's email or at least the metadata or something." And uh, you know, of course, you know Yahoo's like, "Oh, that's a violation of you know you know the Fourth Amendment." Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, they challenged it, and apparently that didn't go too well for them, so they kind of had to, uh, you know, uh, fork over everything, and that unfortunately set a precedent. Uh, so, like, all the other companies that they, uh, you know, went to and, you know, demanded, it was like, well, Yahoo already tried that, it didn't work. So, so wasn't this the, I think we talked about a while back, there's uh, some thing with a lawsuit that the, 
big Yahoo executives that if they released any information, like there's talk about throwing them in jail and stuff, are these the secret, secret documents that they were not allowed to release? Um, maybe. I, I can't recall that particularly offhand, though. Uh, but yeah, these may have been the, uh, the documents they were talking about. So, so it's be interesting to figure out what specifically they were concerned about people knowing about in the documents. It didn't really give much in the article as to what was in these 1,500 uh, well, pages that would well, be... Well, some, some key takeaways include an expanded version of the FISC-R opinion in the case, originally released in 2008 in a more redacted form, uh, the release of the never-before-seen 2008 FISC opinion that we challenged on appeal, uh, the party's briefs, including some of the lower court briefings in the appendices, an ex-part appendix of classified filings, and a partially redacted certification filed with the FISC, as well as a mostly unredacted directive that Yahoo received. Uh, despite the declassification and release, portions of these documents remain sealed and classify unknown even to our team. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, you know a vast treasure trove to probably a lot of people at the uh, you know the EFF and ACLU and you know other uh, legal organizations. It'd be interesting to see what they they dig up in there. Welcome to the Microsoft Windows 95 Video Guide. This unique program will help teach you how to use many of the most important features of the new Windows 95 operating system. I mentioned something from uh, last Thursday, and uh, you know, even though this isn't you know some product I am appreciating, I'd like to appreciate my employer because last Thursday uh, was my manager's retirement party. And it was at this really fancy, high-end, expensive restaurant with valet parking, uh, the Monterey Bay Fish Grotto. Uh, so if you know anything about downtown Pittsburgh, uh, there's like three rivers uh, that are there. You know, two of them come together. And on the one side, on the south side, there's this hill called Mount Washington. And uh, this restaurant is at the top of a 13-story tower on the top of that hill. Uh, so, like, there's, like, a beautiful view of the city, and, you know, it's, like, very luxurious apart, you know, uh, I think it's also apartment building, uh, but this restaurant, uh, was pretty good. It, you know, you come there to eat fish. So is that the restaurant in Pittsburgh, like, pretty much the best one in Pittsburgh? Because I think I've heard of it before. Uh, maybe. It's definitely the best fish restaurant. Okay. Um... So, uh, there I probably had at least $80 worth of food. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, like, this isn't like one of those really fancy restaurants that, you know, give you, like, a very small cube and put it on a huge plate. No, this is, this was actually a substantial amount of food. Okay. Uh, so, and with about 16 people there, it was probably a $1,500 company dinner. <laughs> it's quite a bit. So the next day I come in and tell my CEO, you know, today I feel appreciated. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I work at a great company. That's good. Uh, so, Can't wait till you retire now, huh? <laughs> uh, I, I kind of actually like working there, just like the day-to-day -day stuff that I do. Uh, so, you know, I really wouldn't want to give that up, so... 
And uh, let's go to some podcast feedback, sort of. Uh, let's see, I had uh, messaged Ryan on uh, on one of the uh, previous At the Nexus episodes, and I mentioned about uh, something about DDR4, about you know how it's essentially like the same memory architecture that's been going on for the past, like, I don't know, 15 years or so. And I'm like, okay, well, the basic premise of DDR is double data rate. Uh, which, you know, uh, you know, there's the CPU clock, uh, in your system. Then there's also the system clock or like the external bus clock. And the idea of DDR is that, you know, whenever there's a pulse on the system clock, uh, the front side of that, the rising uh, part of that is when data is transmitted to and from memory. And then again, on the falling side of the signal. And I'm like, okay, well, why haven't, uh, why hasn't there been like another form of memory that would, uh, you know, transmit data, uh, you know, on the the rising, falling, and maybe top of the uh, clock cycle, or maybe at the bottom of it as well. Uh, but I tried to, you know, sort of research this, but I really couldn't find anything. Um, and like other sources saying that, you know, DDR2, you know, essentially. Uh, you know, tried to do that, uh, but for some reason they kept the DDR name. Uh, it's like so confusing, and I need to, you know, maybe look at more closer at that. Uh, so yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, if you'd like to submit feedback to the uh, our show, go ahead and use that link on the uh, on our show note page, or just pretty much anywhere on the Nexus TV. Uh, don't forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day, and uh, hey, mom. Uh, I'll be seeing you, uh, this coming weekend, uh, because I'll be going over that, going over to Columbus, uh, so if you're in the, uh, Columbus area this weekend, I will be at the Potato Stock, uh, in downtown Columbus. Um, let's see, aside from that, you know, the general rule when I, uh, you know, leave my apartment is I want to clean it. <laughs> That's like the surefire way of getting me to clean my apartment up. When you leave it? Yep. So, uh, let's see. Uh, I think I might have mentioned something else. But, uh, yeah, I'll probably be turning on my 20th century more often. So, I, I'm i not sure. I think I might uh, restart my game of Fallout on there. Like, well, you said... I was going to say, you said you got your trackball mouse, too, so we can watch you playing with the lint and everything and digging it out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Those are so much fun, and then you you're cleaning it, and then the ball drops, and it goes rolling across, rolling across the floor. It's like a deep thud. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> you don't bounce much. Yeah, those things are fun. But I have a couple of trackball mice in a box. I should take the ball out just to have it. Yeah. Um. So the funny story about this is that. Uh, I think it might have been earlier on Thursday that uh, my company went through and uh, uh, threw out all of the old computer equipment. Uh, so there were a few Dell desktops lying around that no one had used in a long time. And, uh, you know, we, you know, I wouldn't want to say throw everything out. Apparently Goodwill came and picked them all up uh, along with a very large copier that we had to rent a dolly for. <laughs> It's been uh, big. Yeah, so we threw out, I don't know, like six desktops, two servers, 
a printer, uh, five LCD monitors, which I'm pretty sure none of them worked, and uh, you know a few keyboards and mice. And I'm like, hey, that that mouse down there is a ball mouse. You might uh, want to pick that up. Uh, so I did, and you know, of course, you know, I get it back home and I uh, wipe it down with uh, you know Clorox wipes, mm-hmm. and uh, then you know I uh, flipped on 20th Century here. And I'm like, it still doesn't move quite right. So, you know, I flip it over, you know, clean out the rollers, <laughs> and then, like, I actually uh, unscrew it and take a look at the inside. And, uh, like, some of the, uh, like, the very edge, uh, you know, like, the gap along the side, like, there yeah. was, like, gunk up in there. And I'm like, ooh, did I just touch that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I uh, had to clean that out, too, so... You know, while it was still on, you know, I took out the PCB. There were apparently some ghost turds in there. So, yeah, hopefully this will uh, be uh, what I was intending. Sounds like it is. You already had to clean it. That's what, that's what those mice mice do. Mm-hmm. They cleaned. <laughs> so that's my plan. How about you? It looks like you're back up at your parents' place now. Uh, yes, I am. So I've been doing different stuff in the evening when I stop work. Like we've been trying to get firewood cut here recently and t- tonight after we we're doing that i uh had some deer hides i've been trying to tan for the past few years so i was scraping some hair off of them and then years yes years well see i i flushed them a long time ago and then to preserve them i, I put them into some wa- a water solution mixed with battery acid supposedly that high acid keeps them from rotting and i huh. honestly thought they were rotted away but then I was cleaning the pal out the other day. I dumped the bucket of water and two deer hides came out. I was like, what? <laughs> and they were in shape and, and they had a little bit of hair left on them. I was like, okay. So I, I put them back in the bucket and put just water in and some ash and, and let them sit for a week. And then today I, I went and dumped it again. And, and the rest of the hair pretty much scraped off really nice. There's one spot that needs a little bit more. So you give it a few more days and, and the, the hair should scrape, fall right off pretty good and then I, I i ordered a bunch of trapping stuff online uh last night there and they had for three dollars a tanning solution so i figured I'd, I'd buy that and give that a try and see if it how it tans i've tried brain tanning but it's just it's hard to do so we see brain other... tan yeah or synthetic brain tra- tanning it's since i don't have the brains anymore instead uh, if you use uh, uh what's it called it's a it's a sh- soap a laundry detergent uh, borax nope it's it's used for spots. Uh, it's I think it maybe starts with a B though. Uh, I can't think of the name of it. Anyways, it's la- a laundry detergent. It's evidently has enzymes in it, which hmm. makes it really good for removing the spots because it eats away at the the spots in your clothing. There's like dirt or whatever on it. But those enzymes are exactly the same enzymes that are found in brains that are used for the brain tanning. Hmm. And so you can use the the laundry detergent to tan hides. I've tried it and I've had fair success with it, but the thing with the brain tanning is the breaking the hide in to make it soft is very difficult to do unless you actually want to sit there and chew on it like an Indian. So, so I, I want to try this other tanning solution and see if it's easier easier to break the hide in and, and get a nice hide out of it. We'll see. All right, and, sounds like a plan. Yep. So have a good one. You too. <laughs>